Thanks for being here for this. Thanks for entering into this fun, this joyous celebration of a different kind of music. It's a good day to worship the Lord. And I know that all of our non-golfers are here for this service, so I particularly want to <laughs> particularly want to welcome you. I'm not a non-golfer, so uh, I'm going to give you my very best. On Wednesday morning last, a young man entered into a, uh, a prayer meeting at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And he spent an hour with the people who welcomed him into their presence praying together. And then he pulled out a gun and shot and killed nine of the people who were there. He was a 21-year-old white man, and he's confessed to it. And basically it came down to this. He hates black people. In fact, he was heard to have said, you all have to go. You all have to go. This evil act, and along with the unrest that we've seen in Baltimore in recent weeks, and in other places around our country, reminds us that even now, even after all of the gains that we have made in the, er- in the area of, of racial justice, race continues to be a polarizing issue in this country. And it is still a polarizing issue in the church, too. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, it is an appalling fact that the most segregated hour in American Christianity is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. How are we as followers of Jesus called to respond to the divisive and sometimes murderous issues of race and prejudice? Well, one thing we might do is take, take a look at the early church. For when we look at the early church, we discover that they were facing the very same issues at that time. Deep prejudice, racial divide, and they had to figure out how they were going to handle it. That's what we discover when we come to Acts today. As a reminder, last week, Saul was trundled off to his hometown of Tarsus for safekeeping because after his conversion, he was preaching Jesus in such a powerful way that everyone wanted to kill him. So off to Tarsus he goes, but I promise he will reappear. Then Luke swings the camera back to another place. And we come to a conversion story that actually rocks the Christian world. And I want to tell you that story today. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius who was a centurion in what was called the Italian cohort. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. One day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision. He saw distinctly an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear, and what is it, Lord? He answered. The angel said to him, Your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back to you a man named Simon who is called Peter. When the angel had said these things, he was gone. And Cornelius called two servants to him along with a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and he sent them to Joppa. Around noon the following day, as these men were on their journey and 
approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And as a meal was being prepared for him, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet lowered down to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-legged creatures as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice spoke, Rise, Peter, take, kill, and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything that was impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call impure what God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering what the meaning of this vision was, the men sent from Cornelius found where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking for Simon, who was known as Peter, if he was staying there. While Peter was still wondering about this vision, the Spirit spoke to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Do not be afraid to go with them, for I have sent them to you. Peter went down, and he spoke to the men. He said, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men said, we have been sent by Cornelius the centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well respected by all of the Jewish people. A holy angel told him that We should bring you back to his house so that he could hear what you have to say to him. Then Peter invited them into the house to be his guests. The next day they started out with Peter and men from Joppa came along as well. Let me summarize this part of the story. They travel another day. They come to Caesarea. They walk up to the door of Cornelius' big house for he was a, a very powerful and wealthy man. When they open the door, Cornelius sees the man, Peter. He falls on the ground before him in reverence. Peter says, get up, get up. I'm just a man. I'm just a man. So Cornelius rises and then they go into the inner part of the house. And they discover that Cornelius, in anticipation of God's fulfilling this vision, has invited all of his friends, all of his family. The place is packed out. Peter can hardly believe what he sees. And he walks in and he says, you realize... It is against the law for me, a Jew, to, to be with, to, to dine with, to, to associate with Gentiles. But the Lord has shown me that what he has made clean, we must not call impure. And so Peter begins to preach the message of Jesus to these eager listeners. And I pick up the last part of Luke's story. While Peter was still speaking these words... The Holy Spirit came down on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized In the name of Jesus Christ. This is a story from God's Word. It comes from the book of Acts, chapter 10. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you for this story, Lord, but make it more than a story to us. Make it truth to us and speak to us in the way that it should change us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cornelius was a powerful and wealthy Roman officer. And yet he had eschewed, he had abandoned the pagan gods of Rome. And instead, not only he, but here's a good Father's Day mini-sermon for you, his entire family had become devout followers of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. He was also generous and, and, and the, all of the Jews appreciated him, respected him for the kind of godly man that he was. One afternoon, Cornelius uh, has a vision. He has a vision of an angel that comes to him and tells him to send for a man in Joppa named Simon Peter. How many remember the last time we heard about Joppa in the Bible? You'd have to go a long way back. Do you remember the story of Jonah? The reluctant prophet. God called this reluctant prophet to take the, the story of God's love to the Ninevites, who were the most brutal, <clears throat> brutal, despised, and f- feared people in the world at the time. Jonah's response, of course, was to head entirely the other direction. He didn't want to see God save the Ninevites. He wanted to kill them. So this reluctant prophet goes to Joppa, where he caught a boat in trying to escape God's call upon his life. Isn't it ironic that the next time that Joppa appears in the Bible... It appears in the story of yet another reluctant prophet. This one, what is his name? What is his name? Peter. This one is Peter, another reluctant prophet. God gives him a vision too. He sees this great sheet come down and it's filled with every kind of living creature, including a bunch of living creatures that no good Jewish boy would ever eat. The voice says, go ahead and eat it. But it had pork, it had lobster. I mean, all of the stuff we would love. Peter wasn't about to do this. And you see his response, don't you? He said, surely not, God. Surely not. Isn't that a great response when God comes to us and tells us he wants to do us, invites us to do something, and our response is, surely not. It's actually not something we would expect completely from Peter because that was always his response. He was always fighting with the Lord, always arguing with the Lord, wasn't he? And some things never change. Three times the voice says, come on, Peter, eat. It's okay. I'm not going to do it. Come on, I'm telling you, the Lord has made it clean. I'm not going to do it. Three times and finally the sheet disappears. And of course, when we're reading the story, we realize this story was not essentially about unclean animals was it? It was essentially about unclean people. Unclean people. What were they called? Gentiles. The non-Jews. This vision that God gives Peter is to prepare him for the trip to Cornelius and all of the cohort who have gathered there. All of his friends and family who are so eager to, to hear whatever it is that God wants them to hear. And it turns out to be the message of Jesus. So Peter arrives, he finds these willing listeners, he preached the gospel, and he can't even get the sermon done. Did you notice that? He can't. It's almost like the Holy Spirit said, Peter, you're going on too long. I want to do something. He can't even get the sermon done. While he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. We are told that they spoke in tongues, that they were praising God. This remarkable thing that a Gentile group had their own version of Pentecost. 
And it was confirmation to Peter and all who were listening in of what would have been unthinkable to any devout Jew. And here it was, that God wished to save Gentiles too. That that Jesus had come as the Savior of the whole world and not just to the Jews. This shouldn't have been a surprise though. When God called Abraham, we are told that he called him so that his chosen people would in fact be a blessing to the Gentile world, a light to all nations. We're going to discover that when we make our way through the story next year, starting in the fall. Again and again, we hear repeated the story that God called the Jewish people so that they could be a blessing to the whole world. It's stated clearly in Isaiah 42, for instance. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And this was clearly the mission of Jesus too. Although he tended to hang around Galilee and around Jerusalem and Judea, he also made side trips, remember? He made side trips across the Sea of Galilee. He made side trips up into Tyre and Syrophoenicia. Remember one time he cast out demons out of a man named Legion. Do you remember where Jesus cast the demons into? A a herd of swine, a herd of pigs. What were pigs doing there? Because Jesus was at a Gentile village. Jesus was taking the message of God's love to the Gentiles. That was part of his gospel. From the call of Abraham, God made it clear that Jews had been called to be the chosen people for a mission to the whole world. Unfortunately, over the centuries, that last part of the call got forgotten. And pretty soon, the Jews just considered themselves to be the chosen people, the favorites of God. And not only did they cast aside their mission to the rest of the world, they began to hold the rest of the world in disdain. They hated Gentiles. They wanted nothing to do with them. As a matter of fact, the favorite word for a Jew to describe a Gentile was the word dog. And we think of dog, oh, cute pug. No, dogs were a a scourge upon the land. They were wild curs. And as far as the Jews were concerned, that's what Gentiles were, a scourge on the land. They were undeserving of God's compassion. They were undeserving of Jewish kindness. And they were certainly too polluted for a Jew, a a practicing Jew to hang out with. So when we turn to Acts chapter 10, we discover a religious and cultural collision that will hit the early church like a tidal wave. The conversion of Cornelius and all of his company opens the floodgates. Soon the gospel makes it up to a place called Antioch, which becomes the great church, and it's a Gentile church. And Antioch begins to send the gospel by missionaries into the rest of the Gentile world. It is not long before the Gentile church eclipses the Jerusalem Jewish church and the charge is being led by that famous Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul. There are really really two conversions that take place in this story. Obviously, Cornelius, who is so important. But there's another conversion that took place in this chapter. Whose conversion was that? Peter. You see that? It's also Peter's conversion. As always, the Lord had to arm wrestle him to force him to believe what any Jew would have found unbelievable at the time, that God actually loved Gentiles as much as he loved his chosen Jewish children. 
It is almost impossible for us to fathom how vast the gap there was between Jew and Gentile of the time, but we can try. Imagine the chasm between black and white in Jim Crow South. Imagine the chasm between Nazi and Jew in World War II. Imagine the chasm today between Muslim terrorist and Israeli. That will give you a glimpse of how great the divide there was between the Jew and the Gentile. And yet, God calls Peter, the Jew, to go to, to dine with, to preach to, and ultimately to lead into the kingdom of God an entire room full of Gentiles, Cornelius and his family and friends. And it's absolutely amazing. Diversity is the buzzword today. Every university, every corporation, every municipality talks about diversity. They hire diversity officers. They set diversity targets. They provide diversity training. We are acting today as if diversity is our innovation, something new to us. Could I just point out to you that diversity was God's idea all along The God who created a diverse world. The God who called Abraham to reach out to that diverse world. The God who sent his son to die for that diverse world. And who sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in the lives of diverse believers. And if you want to get a glimpse of our glory, our future, our eternity, then listen just for a moment to this story of diversity as we find it in Revelation. Diversity in eternal worship. Listen to this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That is God's idea of what the church should look like. And one day the church will look like that. Acts 10 reveals the picture of a church that is as diverse and colorful as its creation itself. And and it is the work of an eternally creative God. So this morning I want to look at this topic, this divisive topic. And I want to look at two things that I think this passage teaches us about diversity in the church. First this. Diversity is not the goal it is the outcome. Diversity is not the goal, it is the outcome. Diversity in the early church didn't happen because Peter assigned Thomas to be the apostle of diversity and to develop a strategic, strategic diversity plan to reach out into the, into the Gentile community. Rather, Peter was dragged into a diverse church, kicking and screaming, right? Do you remember the words? It, it's surely not, Lord! Surely not. You don't mean it, God. You can't mean it, he said. So if that's not how they, the early church became diverse, then how did it happen? This is how it happened. By the lifting up of Jesus. Jesus once said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. When you lift up Jesus Christ, when you lift up his teaching, when you lift up his example, his broad and accepting love that welcomes Samaritans and Syrophoenicians and Gadarenes and religious extremists and Jewish fundamentalists all in the same circle, when you really lift up that kind of Jesus Christ and make him the center of your life, the center of your teaching, the center of your church, all people are drawn to that. Jesus is winsome. His message is timeless and transcendent. 
If you exalt Christ and allow Him to teach you what it means to truly love your neighbor, all of your neighbors, regardless of skin color or anything else, if this biblically faithful view of Jesus is what you proclaim and what you live out, then I guarantee you it will draw people of every race, every ethnicity, every background. You do not become a diverse church by focusing on diversity. You become diverse by focusing on Christ who created this diverse world, who loves this diverse world, who died for this diverse world, who sent his Holy Spirit to fill this diverse world. You lift him up and all will be, all must be drawn to him. Here's something else I think that we learn in this passage about diversity. It was a diversity of race. It was not a diversity of belief. Let me say it again. It was a diversity of race. It was not a diversity of belief. For it did matter what Cornelius believed. Didn't it? Otherwise, why did Peter have to come to his house? Cornelius was already described as a devout man, a devout father who led his entire family to, into devotion. We read that he was prayerful, he was generous, he was regular in his worship, and he was well respected. Wow, how can you do better than that? We might put it in these kind of words today. We might say that Cornelius was a good, religious, patriotic citizen. So why fiddle with it? If that were enough, God could have just left him the way he was, right? Why then did he... We have all of this drama. He has a vision. Peter has a vision. Why did Peter need to come and tell him the rest of the story about Jesus? Because the rest of the story about Jesus matters. It's essential. It unified them. What we believe matters and unifies us too. The greatest battle over diversity in the church today, I don't think, is about skin color anymore. It is about ideology. It is an ideology that demotes Jesus and equalizes all other religious teaching. It is the ideology that is expressed in that that ever-present bumper sticker, coexist. Every time I see one, I say, do you know what you are asking of these I recently spoke to the new student body president at Whitworth. He's a godly man and he is going to advocate for our Christ-centered mission at the school. And I'm grateful for that. But as he was in his election campaign, he faced a great deal of opposition from a handful of liberal students. Because as he described it to me, he was not diverse enough. The irony of it is this. He is Sri Lankan. A Sri Lankan in Spokane. You can't be much more diverse than that. But it wasn't his skin color that they were talking about. The fringe group was concerned that he was too Christ-centered, too exclusive in his commitment to Christ and his message and his purpose. He wasn't diverse enough ideologically for them. I long for this church to be a place where anyone of any color, background, education, social status, political persuasion can come and worship and fellowship and serve and be loved and ministered to for the sake of Jesus. But this will happen not because we have watered down the message of the gospel. 
There are things that we believe, things that we assume and affirm that are essential to who we are as followers of Christ. If you want to have a glimpse of that, look at the, the, the brochure in the pew. This is what we believe. You'll understand what we consider to be the non-negotiables. And we will never, never compromise on those convictions in the name of diversity or any other thing. So here's the question. How are we doing as a church in this matter of diversity? I mean, Gig Harbor is not exactly a melting pot racially, is it? But in fact, we do have many in our church whose skin color is a different tone than mine. And so I thought it would be a good thing to ask them. So I did. I contacted many of them this week. I said, could you tell me what has been your experience as a racial minority as a member of this congregation? And I'm pleased to say that the reports are mostly good. One woman told me, she said, I, we feel very welcome. Another man said, I don't feel treated any differently, which is great. Now, there were some instances that were a little disturbing. One black couple said they were approached by someone after service and wanted to know if they were Muslim. And they said, no, we're Christian. And he had a hard time believing that. So we have, still have some work to do. But Across the board, in general, the reports are good. Chapel Hill is a place that welcomes people of all kinds of racial background and skin color and diversity and culture. I'm glad for that. Don't you want to be that kind of a church? I do too. But I think there is an area as a church in which we are less welcoming. And just in case I haven't gored your ox yet, now's my chance. I heard last week from a man who's leaving the church because, as he put it, they do not belong here politically. He shared instances in which he felt like his political views were ridiculed. And I wonder if this isn't the greater diversity challenge that we face as a congregation, and perhaps as a nation. There's a reason that Congress's approval ratings are at an all-time low Because people look at the politicians and they say they're serving their own partisan purposes rather than the good of the people. It's rancorous and and foul what we see happening. And in this increasingly divisive political environment, it is easy for us as followers of Christ to be drawn into that fray, to enter into that Facebook conversation, and to assume that our Christian faith and our political affiliations are one and the same. I have strong political opinions. And perhaps, perhaps they leak out at times. But I have tried over the years not to use this pulpit to advocate for partisan purposes. I do not believe that either Republicans or Democrats have a lock on the truth. And I certainly believe that the gospel of Jesus transcends party politics. And it is our right and responsibility as citizens to engage vigorously in political debate. And, by the way, a higher right and responsibility to pray for those who are in power, for we are told by Paul to do that, whoever they are. May I remind you when Paul said to pray for those in power because God put them there, God allowed for them to be there, they are there by God's permission, Nero was on the throne. And yet we pray. But when we reach the point as a church where Christian Democrats 
and Republicans and Independents and Libertarians cannot sit down together to worship, cannot share the Lord's Supper, cannot gather around a meal and vigorously debate our differences, yet remain in love with and supportive of one another, then we have fallen back into the bigotry out of which the early church was called. I love Peter's summary statement to the Gentile believers. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but He accepts from every nation the ones who fear Him and do what is right. May we be the kind of church that welcomes from every nation, every race, every culture, every background, anyone who wants to join us in the obedient journey of Christian discipleship. Let us pray. God, when we think we're right, it's very hard to accept others that we think are wrong. And there are some topics that are so sensitive that we consider them off limits. Could you show us what it means for us to live in relationship with each other, even in disagreements over lesser things, because we hold the most important things in common? We hold Jesus Christ at the center of our mission, and we hold those essential tenets inviolate. And then we agree as human beings to walk together in discernment and difference and diversity, believing that together we are going to discern better what you want from us as a community than when we try to do it by ourselves. So, Lord, to that end, we commit ourselves. Make this that kind of church. Regardless of the stereotypes outside of the walls, may anyone who walks through our doors find this to be a place of welcome, of delight. Whoever they are, whatever their skin color is, whatever their background is, however wealthy they are, whatever political persuasion, they will come here and they will say, Jesus is lifted up. I am welcomed here to be a disciple of His in this community. May we be that kind of church. Only your Spirit can do this, and so we ask it in the name of Christ. And all of God's people said...